Morena, etefano atekaraiti, good morning people loved by God, which of course means everyone. Hey, last week we looked at um, Matariki. Well, we didn't so much look at Matariki as look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus and deal with different cultures and to become aware of how our own cultures shape us. And uh, I got down from... uh, at a cup of tea time, someone had me on and said, listen, uh, during this sermon you showed a slide of the Northern, Hemis- Northern Hemisphere globe. And he said, so really, it should have been a, a globe the other way around. So I went hunting for one. And so this is my apology. Here it is, the upside-down world. Where would you find that? Anyone know? In, irony alert, in England. <laughs> it's in, of all places, the London School of Economics. It's by the artist Mark Wallinger. And, uh, and it, there is actually there's something quite odd about it, that this thing, I find it quite provoking, just to see Australia written that way. I don't think I've seen that on a globe before. Which, again, makes you aware of all this kind of cultural stuff that we don't notice. And then you see something different, you go, hang on, what's going on there? Why not? Why shouldn't it be the other way around? For English people, this world is upside down and the wrong way up. For us... It's the right way up. Okay, and now for an ad break. Oh, hopefully you'll have sound. Let's find out. I always thought me and Billy Wallace would be good friends. This folks had the farm next to ours, so we grew up together. We went to school together, played footy together. Then I took over the farm, and uh, he went to work for mainland, so we kept in touch. Now, of course, the kids work the farm, so Billy and me have time for a bit more fishing. Okay, I know you couldn't hear most of the words, but who remembers that ad? Yeah, we're showing our age here. The, uh, the punchline to it was he described, you know, the things they did as kids and the things they did, you know, they, and they worked and they get, now we're retired, we've got more time, and the punchline is, I always thought me and Billy would be good friends. Still, time will tell. <laughs> um, which I quite like. It's an old ad from Mainland Cheese, and I like that it reminds us that there's other time frames besides the urgent one. I need it now. John F. Kennedy used to tell the story of going into, a, um, going into NASA and having a conversation with a janitor who was mopping the floors, and JFK apparently asked him what his job was at NASA, and the gentleman said, I'm helping send a man to the moon. Uh, Another story that's often told is of um, three stonemasons at work, and someone asks the first one, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building, <coughs> I'm cutting up rocks. And the second one is asked, what are you doing? And that person says, well, I'm building a wall. And the third one says, oh, didn't you know we're building a cathedral? Which is a strong message, because uh, in most of the larger cathedrals in Europe took more than a lifetime to build. So a stonemason might work on it his entire life and never see the end of the project, 
which is kind of foreign for us, isn't it? We want to see the reactions now. Where's the project that we're working on that is going to be completed after us? We build things for now. People used to build things for their mokapuna. And what confidence they had in their architect, which is strange for us because do we have that much confidence in anyone? <laughs> Looking that far forward, everything changes. And where are you going to get the jib board to finish that job? There's some research being done that points out that it is, in fact, true that in today's world, we speak faster than we used to. They've gone back and looked at early recordings. In today's world, we walk faster than we used to. We're in more of a rush. If anybody here has been in the country and moved into the city, have you ever noticed that? There's a classic thing. The, um, the country kid comes into somewhere like um, Queen Street in Auckland, and just goes for a walk, and he is being bumped by everyone. And he wants to say hello to everyone, because that's what you do in the country. We walk faster, we read faster as well, although the research shows that that's an entirely different kind of reading to slow reading. So maybe every so often it's good to pause, look up at the sky, reorient ourselves. That's kind of matariki stuff, isn't it? To remember, Ecclesiastes 7.8 says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. And patience is better than pride. So what has got up to? What is the end of the matter? Well, here it is from Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. The Bible tells us that the mission of God is to bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity under Christ, reconciling them by the blood of Jesus. And the end result is this phrase, gospel renewal, that we've been throwing around the place. Until then... There's a plan and there's stuff for us to do. And that's what God is doing. That's the end of the matter. So yes, you may be mopping the floors or washing the dishes or moving chairs or, and you can be part of the slow and certain growth of the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you'll succeed. Doesn't mean terrible things won't happen. But God will bring everything together. Now a number of you know that I read quite quickly um, and I generally try not to talk about the book that I'm reading at the moment because I get caught up in new ideas and what things will pass the test of time. A year ago I took a sabbatical and then there's the next couple of messages are just going to explore some things that came out of it. I've waited a year because I'm trying to let the froth and bubble go. I'm looking for the things that stay. And this time I'm, I'm going to, I want to talk to you about a book, a book about the early church. Because one of the things that happens when you look outside our time, we become aware of, well, actually, this is how I see things. Maybe the world could be the other way around. So, the book about the early church, it asks a really good question. It says, uh, written by a church historian and an academic, full of footnotes, he says, how come the early church grew so quickly? And he points out that it wasn't because they talked about mission. They didn't talk about mission at all. In fact... Matthew 28, Great Commission, do you know what they used that verse for? So that they would know how to baptize people. 
That's uh, how we got the habit of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yep. They weren't using it to talk about the mission and reaching out to others. They were using it to talk about how you baptize. So if that's what they were talking about, this writer asks, how come they grew? Now there's another writer, a guy called Michael Green, who wrote a book that I imagine many of you have seen. Anybody seen this book? Read this book? Come across it? Just checking and see. Uh, okay. Um, it's called Evangelism in the Early Church. Um, there's three different copies of it there. I've got two of those on my bookshelf. They're the same book, so if anyone wants to steal one, could you steal that one? Okay. Um, and in a, he writes about, he tries to write about how evangelism worked in the early church, and he had a number of conclusions. The first thing is they said, he said they had intolerant zeal. They were just sold out for this thing. Yep, this is how they were. He said um, they taught about the afterlife, and in a world where life was short and often brutal, knowing there might be a laugh after was a really big deal. There were clearly miracles. That's written about in the church, in the Bible, but also in other literature. They had very strong morals and strikingly different to the people of the time. And lastly, actually the church begets, starts to get organized. So he's trying to say, how come they grew? And there's one other that we won't particularly like. Um, uh, and this is added by a different author who says, actually, at times the church grew by force. We do have crusades in our backgrounds. There's things, there's a lovely book called Bullies and Saints, which is a retelling of church history and owning the bits of church history where you think, oh, do we really? Um, because we often have both in the go. But the writer of this, the book, I'm, this isn't the book I'm talking about. The book I want to talk about is this one. It's called The Patient Ferment of the early church, the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it's a fascinating read, it's a hard read, it's an academic text, okay? And I'm gonna try and make it, I'm gonna try and highlight three things that leapt out of me. And the first thing was patience. Now, I'm not a huge fan of patience. I do not want to tell you to be patient. Have you tried that as a parent? Saying be patient to a kid? Does it work? I don't want to tell you this because I, don't, I have enough difficulty with it myself. I mean, I want patience right now, and yes, I know there's a problem with that. <laughs> and I know it's dumb. And listen, if I was given a choice between planting a lawn, um, getting the stones out, uh, fertilizing it, putting seeds down, keeping the birds away, or just getting ready lawn, you know what I'd do, don't you? Yes, I'm into, into instant grassification. Thank you for the pity laugh, I'm grateful. <laughs> so I don't want to talk about patience, but they did. In this different culture, they really wanted to talk about patience. And the way we know this is that when they were given a chance to write something, because they did write, they called them treatises, when they did write treatises, a whole bunch of the early church fathers write about patience. So this guy, he goes through and he reads what Justin Martyr, no prizes for guessing what happened to him. Okay, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian and Origen, which is kind of like an early dream team of early church fathers. Um, they all have a lot to say about patience. In fact, three of the five wrote a book about patience, and it's generally the first thing that they write. Why did they think patience was so important? What has that got to say to us? Well, 
Last week we looked at Paul and how he suggested that the church in the Corinthians dealt with uh, the areas of disagreement about a cultural change. And at the start of it he wrote, knowledge is good, but it can puff up, but love builds up. Yep, and then of course later on he writes that um, famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that you hear at weddings everywhere. Can you remember this? See if you can complete the next word. Love is... Yeah, funny that, isn't it? (laughs) Love is patient, it is kind, but first it's patient. Love may not boast, but first of all it's patient. And when you hear, and this comes up later in that passage, that love never gives up, never loses faith, never gives up hope, endures through every circumstance, you find yourself thinking, hang on Paul, are you just writing love is patient, love is patient, love is patient? Because it sounds a bit like that. Never gives up, never loses faith, never gives up hope, endures through every circumstance. Anyone who's been married or has kids knows this. You know, you marry someone, sorry, not going to pick on you. Well, yes, I am, no. Um, (laughs) You marry someone because you love them and there's lots of things you like about them and you kind of can't help but think the things you don't like about them, the things where, you know, clearly they're wrong, they're just going to change, aren't they? Because you love each other. That's kind of what we all think and people are grinning at this stage because we know that's not really how it works out. Those differences don't just magically fade away. At least they haven't for me and Linda. (coughs) If they have for you, you're amazing. Love is patient. And then you have kids. And look, I I grew up walking fast, and I still struggle not to walk fast, but the kids can't walk at that speed. And love is patient. Walk slowly together. And now I have a father who's older, which, how did that happen? And he can't walk fast. And love is patient. Built into the character of love. And so they quote 1 Timothy, who when he's summing up the good news of Jesus, says this this way. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. So that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. The early church writers thought, first of all, God is patient with us. Could choose to do another Noah's flood, wipe us all out, but no, God is being patient. Every breath you get, every breath I get, is because God is being patient. God could just wipe out all evil, but God is patient. The famous theologian Karl Barth said that he thought the patience of God, the shocking patience of God, you can see in God allowing his son to hang on a cross, having the ability to snatch him off. Now, I've always thought about Jesus hanging on the cross and the patience he has, but God the Father being able to stop it and choosing not to. Now I'm a dad, that one hits me hard. God is patient with us and with those who are yet to know God. Love is patient and God is patient. But this guy's writing about the early church. And so he starts off by quoting this early church region, uh, Cyprian, he says. This is what Cyprian writes. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, But in truth, by truth, we know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. 
Here's the famous line, we do not speak great things, but we live them. And he carries on. Therefore, as servants and worshippers of God, let us show by spiritual homage the patience we learn from the heavenly teachings, for that virtue we have in common with God. Cyprian thought, we're to be patient. One of the reasons they felt this was that they felt like God is in charge. God is, has a plan, and we're just a little part of that. So you can wreck things by impatiently trying to push ahead. You needed to be patient, and they thought, listen, we just have to live our faith and communicate it in deeds. Um, they called it patientia, because, of course, a lot of them are writing in Latin. Patience is rooted in God's character, and so I'm going to save you reading all these early church fathers. I'm just going to give you Alan uh, Krieger's summary. He says, patience is rooted in the character of God, who could wind things up tomorrow, but waits for us, and waits for people who don't know Jesus. And patience is shown in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who's around for 30 years before you hear of great miracles, who doesn't seem to be in rush. In fact, you read through the Gospels, he's trying to slow things down. Patience is not in human control, which I think may be one of the reasons we really struggle. So many things we have control of now. We rush from place to place. We have, I've got a device here and 95% of the time I'm in control of it. <laughs> There's a good 5% when I really don't know what I'm doing. They thought the people who lived a patient lifestyle show their trust in God. And they don't try and manipulate outcomes to get what they want because they trust that God's at work. They thought that patience meant you're not in a hurry. Ooh, I'm uncomfortable with that one. I am in a hurry. The patient Christians live by the pace God gives them accepting incompleteness and waiting. You may read these and hear these and just go, eh, I'm, I find them a bit uncomfortable because they tell me something about my worldview. Good news is they saw patience as being unconventional. It was not their society's norm. They could do this because they trusted that God was at work. They saw that patience was never violent. And you wouldn't have think of this because these guys, to a large extent, it wasn't popular to be a Christian. They were a minority, the stage we're looking at. Occasionally there's persecution, but you'd, it, you couldn't just go to church because you had to find out where the church was and they wouldn't tell you until they realized you had a decent faith. It's that kind of world. It accepts injury without retaliating because violence is not God's calling to them and will not bring fundamental change, is what they say. Interestingly, they thought patience gives religious freedom, so you never compel religious belief. In fact, they reckoned if you wanted to stop going to church, leave church, that's fine. They were generous with it. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, they saw patience as being hopeful. Remember, they're living lives mostly, these are poor people mostly, living a long time ago. They have very little control. They are mostly slaves and servants. There are some business owners and some Romans, but for the most part, we think not in charge. And they've got confidence that God is at work, and they think patience is part of being faithful. 
pause for a moment. How are you feeling when you hear this? Okay. Me, I get up, and let's quote some of the verses, because I'm not really preaching to you from what a bunch of old people said a long time ago. I want to involve the word of God as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Read this next bit with me. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So I have to sit back so you guys can see. Uh, oh, really? There we go. Here's another one. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that we're just as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. There's this sense where Paul sees, the early church sees patient endurance, not getting what you want. What I want is good for us. <laughs> so in contrast, we are impatient. What do you reckon? Is that a good description of our culture? Yep, Henri Nouwen said this. In fact, he went on to say that you, our culture is marked by an inner restlessness. Okay, we're just not content. We want something more. And he went on to say, we live in a culture that is constantly wanting to escape from the here and now as soon as possible. Again, I don't really like this because I think it's a reasonably good description of me. Yep, and I don't, want to be that. Part of it is we're very task-oriented. We want to get stuff done as quickly as possible. It's the mark of Westerners. The mark of Westerners when they do mission attempts. Watch out for this, AJ, when you go do a short-term thing. And uh, I, um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a... Um, I've stolen a clip from the When Helping Hurts course. I just thought this was really funny. The, um, the main presenter, he's gone in to visit a church that has been absolutely stunning at building good works in the poor. They, he describes, you sort of drive through this terrible area, and then you reach the air, this community building that the church is running, and it's flash, and there's huge amounts of stuffing on it, and he wants to know, how did you get there? So uh, there'll be a bit of sound from this, Steve. Here we go. I sat down with him, I said, how did you do it? How did you rehab all these homes? Can you show me your spreadsheets? Can you show me your blueprints? And they said... Well, we can show you that stuff, but you kept asking us how we did this. I said, right, I want the plans, I want the blueprints. And they said, well, you're saying you want the plans and the blueprints, but you're also saying you wanted to learn how we did it. Those are not the same things. I'm not getting it yet. I said, how did you do this? They said, we hung out with kids for several years. We played stickball in the streets. We got involved in our community. We took kids to see the Baltimore Orioles play. We hung out with people. We pursued their dreams. We used their resources. We used their gifts. And so the process we used was hanging out. That is a classic conversation that we get in the West all the time. How did you get there? How do you get the task done? What do we need to do there? And their response is, well, we can tell you that. We can give you the spreadsheets, but hang on, this actually came from hanging out with people. I'm not arguing for a lack of strategy. Or a lack of intentionality. 
The other thing I observe in the church is we're not only impatient, but we are anxious. We look at the churches in the West and how they're not growing, and we think, oh, things are not looking flash. We are worried about how the world is changing. So if I was going to summarize this, I'd say, do you know we're awfully like the people of Israel on the way through the promised land? In one of those moments where they're just not trusting that God will sort it. And they're saying, can we go back to the way things were? Or can you give us a miracle and open the rock now? It, it's, it's, it's not enough. And if we were to listen to the early church, they might say, hang on. This is about God and Jesus who will do what God will do. We don't, you don't have to speak great things. You have to live them. Hang in there. And that's not great news, really, is it? We'd like to have it fancily changed, but if this is the world we live in, maybe we'd be wise to think about the things we could do to get better at waiting. Okay, I said three things, and I've spent most of the time on patience because it's the one that makes me go, most. The second thing they talked about, well, by the third century, the, this Christian movement had become millions, and it had started with none. And mostly it looks like outsiders became Christians because they saw the way patient Christians did business with other Christians. Here's what an outsider, uh, I've written his name, Aristides, wrote about Christians. He said, well, when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his um, burial according to his ability. And if they hear anyone's been imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. If it's possible he can be delivered, they deliver him. And if there's a man among them who's poor and needy, and they have not had an abundance of necessities, they fast a day or two days or three days so that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. Outsiders saw that Christians had a distinctive way of living. They were burying their poor, they were rescuing abandoned um, infants, they were not swearing oaths, they were loving their enemies. Remember Cyprian said, we don't speak great things, but we live them. The church's focus wasn't on mission, it was how do you live this kingdom life? And what does that look like in your actions? They had a phrase they called habitas, which some, uh, some sociologists have started to use. A visible body difference. How does it change what you do with your body? The significant difference for us is most Christians were poor. This is a, uh, a painting of what we think an insula looked like. So this is a kind of where most Romans would have lived. And I don't know, you can't see it at the back. I'll shift these back a little bit. Sorry, Jasper. It's the kind of setting where if you're having dinner, other people can see you eating dinner. If you are um, hanging out together, other people... If you wanted to see a, a common analogy, it would be closest to living like in, in a slum. Now, the thing is that in this setting, if a family suddenly changes the way they live... Everybody sees it. It's really obvious. Christians were different in their behavior. One of the things that marked them is that you never saw men and women eating together. You never saw rich and poor eating together. You never saw uh, um, changes of um, bosses and slaves. This isn't what was done. The, um, but the Christians did, and it was obvious. And like I say, in this setting, if you're poor... 
then you can see what's happening now. I took a photo from just across the road there. If one of these houses, if a family in one of these houses becomes Christian, it probably really will change the way they live, but who will see it? Only people who are already in contact with them because we won't. And this, I think, is probably the reason that in the West, the church is struggling. Because this is where we live. And you know where the church is not struggling? In the East, in worlds where they live like this. I don't think we're visible. I think it's our biggest challenge. And in the next few months, I'd like to try and explore what that might look like. AJ, you're in a lovely position because at university, students are passing. Those who are hungry for connection, there's that kind of mixing in the whole thing. You get a chance where people are visible and they're at a stage of life where if they make a change, it's massive. But most of us aren't living in that stage. So these fences are an issue for us. So next few months, I'd like to try and be exploring how we could draw alongside people how we could hang out, recognizing the people we're already hanging out with. Because I think this visible bodily difference is massive. And I'll whip through this really quickly. Here's some of the things that this author thinks are markers of the early Christian community. They met frequently because they thought it was really important. They, this is funny. They stood in prayer, arms raised. Now, you'll have noticed I'm not a great hand raiser. But the issue here is they're not bowing, groveling, please God, don't smite me as you are if you're worshipping many other gods there, but they're confident. The God who can defeat others. They're praising and thanking God. They make the sign of the cross as a marker wherever they go. They eat together. Giving the kiss of peace. Now, especially in COVID days, maybe we don't want to greet each other with a holy kiss. But the significance of this is this went across race, class, and age. Yep, it was a real marker of the equality of people. They visited the poor and the sick. They exercised hospitality. They put money in the collection box. And by the way, that collection box was to go to the poor because they thought they had a responsibility towards the poor. They replenished the stocks of food and clothing. They fed needy people. They Still, it wasn't anything goes. They approached things and said, how do we discern? They were honest. They maintained sexual purity. They were willing to lose out in business. They were okay for people to leave the church and they faced death without fear. Hmm, I'd quite like to belong to a group like this, if they'd have me. That's the, third, that's the second thing. So the first thing was patience. The second thing had to do with kind of visible difference. And the third thing, which I quite like, and is the reason that there's been wine barrels in the background all the time, he wrote about ferment. If you went to Alan Krieger and said, what was the strategy the early church chose? He would say, no, no, it may be better to think of this as fermentation. In fermentation, you kind of get energy from within. If you've ever watched beer and the bubbles going up, or if you can't handle beer, champagne, and if you don't want to handle that, soda stream, Coke, they just kind of bubble up. But real fermentation, when you haven't injected it in, what happens is the energy comes from within. It's slightly alive and nothing seems to happen. It's like there's nothing going on in it. There's nothing going on in that can of beer, you think. But if someone's shaken it and you open it, 
you discover there's all this life and energy. And he said, this is what he saw in the early church, is in this community over here, there's this little thing bubbling up and it starts to grow and it takes off. And this one, there's something else bubbling up. Which fascinates me because we live at a time in church life when it's not obvious to know what the next thing to do is. But it'll bubble up. We might find it. Maybe we can be patient watching for it. If we were to look to the early church, we'd say, hang out, eat meals together, be patient, relax, live your lives differently. And you know, if it doesn't make the front page news, that might be a good thing because our actions do speak. Anyway, that's what this academic book that I read and have reread and reread spoke to me about a year ago, and it's refused to go away. And what does it mean for us? Well, my take is there's something in here about our need to draw alongside others. Not to be in charge, but to be alongside, to put down our agendas and be present. I think there's something in here about consciously abandoning anxiety about church and the world. Because when you are constantly anxious about the church is going to die, the world is going to... It changes us and we become impatient and untrusting. The end of it all is good. It's why we keep talking about the bigger picture. I want to encourage us all that the world is not going to hell in a a handbasket or any kind of basket. It's going to, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and earth. Love is patient. Paul says love builds up. I think we're called to be patient. That's not about complacency. It's recognizing that it's God that does the stuff that lasts. And maybe if I had that strongly enough in me, I would be better at praying, taking time in my life without agendas to sit, be with God. Maybe we could all be. They they wrote about the importance of being patient. They sought to see how is my life different to the people around me. And they had the lovely thing of being visible for it. And lastly, they said, relax and let things bubble up. Some of those bubbles will last for a season. Some will just disappear. So I found that a really provoking book. I hope you found it mildly helpful. You don't have to read it. I, um, I wanted to pray this, and then after this, I'm going to, uh, we're going to sing a cappella, a little refrain while the music team comes up. Okay? So I'd just like to pray for us. Maybe you can read this with me. In our lives, in our relationships, in our world, may your patient kingdom come. Let's do it one more time. In our lives, in our relationships, In our world, may your patient kingdom come. Now, can you swap over, Rachel, and just show us the song? Um, Some people here would um, start start the day with the Anglican prayer book. I often use um, uh, common prayer for ordinary radicals. And it has this phrase that happens all the time, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to the sun. Not quite the the words we use. I came across a song uh, called Your Patient Kingdom. It goes like this. 
Let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to the sun. Let my soul rise up to meet you. Let your patient kingdom come. What I'd like us to do is I'd like us to sing that three times while the music team comes up. And I want you to think about the places where you are trusting that God might be at work. Let's have a go. I might maybe a little bit higher. Let, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to the sun. Let my soul rise up to meet you. Let your patient kingdom come. And again. Let my soul rise up to meet you. As the day rises to the sun. Let my soul rise up to meet you. Let your patient kingdom come. One last time. Let my soul rise up to meet you. As the day rises to the sun. Let my soul rise up to meet you. Let your patient kingdom come. my mind to Calvary 